Morning, everyone. Yeah, we've got an interesting passage before us today. I want to say uh, some things. I'll say some things by way of introduction, uh, which will sort of come up on the screen. But I do want to let you know that uh, I'm going to have a time for questions at the end of the sermon. Is that okay? We haven't done this before. Um, I'm going to have an opportunity for questions at the end of the sermon. The reason for that is, um, well, you have a listen to the sermon and you might have some questions. How about that? Uh, Let me start by uh, saying a couple of things. Four things to watch when we come to God's word. Four things for us to watch when we come to God's word. Uh, Number one, uh, we need to watch uh, when we hear God's word and it leads us to cheer. Okay, so our first response is to go, yeah, I love that. I think that's awesome. Now, I actually think we could do some more of that. But sometimes we do it when it seems to affirm something that we think is very precious. So we just go, yay, we want to cheer straight away. I think we need to be watching it carefully uh, when we hear the word and we, it, it makes us fear. I hope it didn't say what I just think it said. I think we need to kind of just hang on, buck up our seatbelts. It's really nice the way that Matt introduced it and said, uh, we say this is the word of the, God, uh, word of the Lord because uh, we believe somewhere in there is something good. I think we need to be concerned uh, when we steer the word of God to a conclusion that we've decided beforehand. Okay. And so uh, we need to be opening the Bible really carefully so that we're not going, I've decided we need to get here and I'm going to make it go there sort of almost regardless. So what I want to encourage all of us to do, something that I've been doing for the last couple of weeks, is to work really hard to hear what the Bible's saying. To work really hard to hear uh, what the Bible's saying. Well, some things about me and this passage. So this is a really interesting passage. Here's some things about me and this passage. Uh, Thing number one... uh, I'm somebody who has been saved by Jesus who's talked about in this passage. That's good, isn't it? I hope many of you have as well. Uh, Secondly, I'm a man. Hello, I'm a man. Uh, Thirdly, I'm a married white man. Um, I'm a married white man who's an Anglican minister. I'm a married white man who's an Anglican minister who's been trying really hard to work on this text carefully. That's my study looking messy because I've been working on this text quite hard. Uh, I'm a, a person who comes to this text um, aware of the complexities. Uh, that's a lot of spanners hanging up on the wall, which I really wouldn't know how to pick which one is which, other than one would probably fit, I assume. Uh, I'm aware of the complexities. It's a complex passage. Uh, I'm aware that there are implications for where we're going, so I'm conscious as I open up this part of the Bible that it'll, it'll have some implications about where we're going. I am opening up this passage with an open door in mind. Uh, I want to encourage people to chat with me over this passage. We're going to do it practically at the end of this sermon, but in an ongoing way as well. And lastly, as, as Matt's already said, I, uh, I want to approach this passage believing that somewhere in it is something good for us. Something in it that's good for us. That's some things about me. Well, let's remember Timothy's charge, what Paul told Timothy to do. Matthew uh, gave us this last, last week. Um, I haven't had a chance to catch up with Matt's sermon, but I know he's very careful at preaching, so I'm going to guess he said something like this. Uh, if we have a look, open your Bibles up. Uh, we're in 1 Timothy. Uh, you probably uh, have that there. 1 Timothy and chapter 1, and I'm looking at verses 3 and 4. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia... Stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such 
things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Uh, Timothy was told, stay in Ephesus and control the spread of false teaching that's going on. That's your job. That's why you're supposed to be there. Uh, We see that picked up in verses 18 and 19. Timothy, my son, uh, Paul says, beautiful uh, connection to the younger man. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. So what's he supposed to do? Timothy, stay here. Fight against heresy. Stand firm and, uh, and hold on to faith and a good conscience. So what we're going to have a look at in this passage today, I think chapter 2 expands for us how it is that Paul wanted Timothy to stand firm, to fight the battle. The first thing that uh, Paul says to Timothy that he should do is he should help the church there to stand firm prayerfully. Prayerfully. So let's have a look at that. Uh, uh, Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. It's really interesting. Uh, The first response to standing firm is, get your church praying. Get your church praying. It's a bit boring, isn't it? Can't we do something a bit more active than that? But no, that's what he says. What I want you to do is prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving for all people. Intercession, that's asking on behalf of. Thanksgiving, giving thanks. Uh, I always think that we need to do uh, more work at our giving thanks. But for all people, for kings and all those in authority. Uh, In other words, we should be, and it was helpful that Jenny modelled this for us. Thank you, Jenny. Uh, We should be people who are lifting up the government around us and praying that they might help us to live what it says there, quiet and peaceful lives in all godliness and holiness. So we should be praying, government, help us to live in a way that's peaceful and quiet and godly and holy. I don't know how often that makes it onto your agenda. I don't know how often we corporately do that other than once a Sunday, but Paul is urging them here, I urge, you see he said, I urge then that first of all these things be done. Well, I don't know if, uh, if your picture of that uh, looks a little, bit, uh, a little bit strange. Paul is keen that we pray together for rulers and for quiet lives. Is this what we had in mind? A little English village where nothing very much happens. That's the quiet life. So, God, please give me no more uh, earth-moving equipment around Oran Park. If you can keep the dust down, that would be great. Um, If the diggers didn't start at 6 o'clock in the morning, we can have a peaceful and a quiet life in all godliness. I don't think so. In fact, we see why he wants a peaceful and quiet world. Have a look at what follows. Peaceful and quiet is... This is good, he says in verse 3, and pleases God our Saviour who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself for a ransom for all people. 
What's God's purpose? Why does God want peace and quiet and godliness and holiness? So that the good news may go forward. You see, I can imagine, uh, we spoke, uh, we prayed at least, about the Ukraine uh, before the service. This terrible situation there. Uh, I imagine that is an incredibly fraught place to try and share the good news. Would you agree? It may well be that people are very receptive to the good news because there's lots of reasons to require hope in a very hopeless situation. But in terms of being able to hold a regular church service and go about the job of announcing Jesus, a a world of turmoil and hardship um, isn't the right place to do it. So I think he's saying, please pray for peace and quiet that the good news of Jesus might go forward. Notice who the good news is for. Uh, The good news is for all people. See there, it says all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. I love that that's God's heart and that he's made provision for that to happen in Jesus. Notice Jesus Christ who gave himself up as a ransom for who? For all people. Men and women, children, adults, Jew, Gentile, Jesus is a sufficient saviour for all. There's level ground before the cross. What does Paul want to see happen? That we would pray together for the mission, confident of God's work in Jesus and his will that all people be saved. See, uh, we have a crazy uh, vision statement here at New Life. Does anyone know what it is? We long to see what? That's good, that's good. Some people are saying something. And if you, if you ever forget what our mission statement is, if you look up the front here, it's actually this sneaky, it's written up the front. Has anyone noticed that before? Some of you have. Okay, we long to see new life in every home. When we pray that, are we praying something that God doesn't want to see happen? No. God's will is that everyone would be saved and he's made provision for that by having Jesus die for us. So when you pray, pray confident in God's will and his work in Jesus. Does that make sense? Great. How should he fight? Number one was to fight prayerfully. Number two is to fight carefully. Prayerfully and carefully. Prayerfully, a message for men, and then two messages for women that we're going to unpack one at a time. The organisation of the body of people who are standing firm are to be carefully arranged. So let's have a look at the, uh, at the first one. Uh, so have a look here. Uh, this is for uh, the blokes. Uh, verse 8. Because God's done all that, therefore, verse 8, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I want men everywhere to pray. Sounds good. That would be the regular thing that men would be into. Is that right? Oh, There's a little moment for interaction there, you see. Uh, would you say that that's true? It, it doesn't seem to me to be the first thing that men are into. Uh, we get together and the first thing we do is, hey, I know, let's pray. Maybe you haven't hung out enough with me and I'm dragging all the rest of you down. You're having private prayer meetings, men. That's great. I suspect that's not the case. And so what we're seeing here is, is a, I think, a bit of a kick in the pants. Uh, here's my summary. Uh, bloke, stop the biff, get holy and get praying. 
what does he want? He wants them to be lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. See, if I lift up my hands, I, I really don't ever do this because it's, I, I get my block knocked off or something, but I, when men pick up their hands, you could be doing this, right? Don't keep disputing. You're not picking up your hands for that purpose. You're picking up your hands for this purpose, men. It's more important, not that you're right, notice what they're into, without anger or disputing. Why are men disputing? Because we need to be right. God doesn't want you to be so concerned about being right that you're always disputing with one another. He wants you to be righteous in picking up holy hands. Not right, but righteous. Not brawling, but prayerful. Now, I don't see a lot of brawling going on here, men, if I can encourage you in that regard. Well done. Uh, But I do want to encourage you from God's word here, guys, we've got to be doing more praying. Now, one of the great things that has been happening, uh, and Joanne will have seen it because she comes to our prayer meetings very regularly. When we have our prayer meetings, Joanne's very faithful. Matt's always there. I'm there. And often, there are a good number of blokes who come along. I'm really encouraged by that. I'd love there to be more blokes, and next time we have a prayer meeting, I know you'll have been listening carefully, and you'll come along. Is that right? Uh, Look, I'll just take a little aside. I've got lots of fun things to say today, but as a little aside, men, why don't we pray? I think we think it's the most worthless thing we can do. When we say lift up your hands, the other thing that men can do with their hands, apart from biffing one another, is to be doing something practical with their hands, yes? Yeah? What do you want me to do? You want me to sit in a room and talk to someone who isn't there about stuff that may or may not happen? Doesn't sound very practical, does it? Unless the living God is present and your prayers are heard and he has a mission for the world that's guaranteed by Jesus. It's not worthless. It's a worthy use of your time. All right, he continues. Uh, Have a look with me. I also want women to dress, verse, uh, verse 9, I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. It uh, seems to be pretty directive, doesn't it? Blokes, hands, women, what you wear. What's, uh, what's the point here? Well, this is my, uh, my little summary. Uh, ladies, bin the bling and let the good deeds flow. Um, it, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, there's a whole lot of speculation about what women at the time did. Uh, and if they were getting dressed up, it would appear, unlike today, they don't have special hair straighteners and whatever, that they, it took a long time took a long time, and people were getting really elaborately done up. And it says there, uh, hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, um, pearls and gold uh, weren't cheap. Are they cheap today? They weren't cheap then either. They were very expensive items, and they flaunted, at some degree, your riches. Paul's point, really, is a very simple one. Don't be covering yourselves in the signs of wealth. Don't be pouring your labour out on a little stool in front of a mirror to make yourself look awesome and expensive. Instead, pour your life into things that are good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. 
I don't think there's anything particularly controversial here other than to say our concern shouldn't be first and foremost with our look outwardly, but our heart and character inwardly. I actually don't think he's saying, ladies, if you've got anything gold on, you need to throw it away. I don't think that's his point. In fact, I think he's just winding the language up to say, come on, don't spend your time getting all blinged up. That's not what godly women should do. Pour your time and energy into your character, into your heart. That's your first thing. It's not don't wear jewellery, okay? It's primarily put your effort into good deeds appropriate for those who profess to worship God. So ladies, it's okay to wear jewellery, no problems. And I love, if I can say a word of affirmation, I love the beautiful character of the ladies in this church. I see lots of godliness, servant-heartedness, and I I really don't think this is an area that we're struggling in being blingy in. Uh, And it's certainly not, at this passage at least anyway, um, something about choosing particularly what clothes you wear or don't wear. It's about pouring your energy into seeking good deeds. There is one more point in this passage. Did you notice that? Of course you did. When it comes to teaching and men, ladies learn, don't spurn, is what I want to say. Learn, don't spurn. Let's unpack what that might mean. We're going to dive in, but before we do that, I want to say a couple of things about this part in particular. Okay? First thing to say, there is honest disagreement from beautiful, godly Christian people that I respect on this topic. Okay? It needs to be said. And uh, if you're at all following social media um, things at the moment, uh, there's two books doing the round that speak to this very strongly. Um, Hearing Her Voice by John Dixon and Women's Sermons in the Bible by uh, a group of authors um, from Matthias Media. Uh, I don't think that this conversation necessarily has been had in the best possible um, charity, uh, but there is honest disagreement and it's worth pointing that out. Okay? Secondly, I think we need to be tentative on reconstructions. Okay? Can I explain what I mean by this? It'll be important. Okay? So bear with me just for a second. Reconstructions is when we look back at what the ancient world was like. Now, today, we see only parts, right? We see only parts. It's possible to... I was going to say extrapolate. It's possible to build out a picture of what the ancient world looked like and draw a beautiful painting like this. Can you see that? But the trouble is, we can quite often get caught up in saying, oh, yes, there was red paint on the edges here, and, uh, and there was a particular breeze that came in the afternoon and blew through here and made that second column there very nice place to sit and read your book. And the point is, you can make some tentative conclusions from history from what we can see. But to say, I have all the answers, I understand perfectly what, what Ephesus was like, and therefore I can solve the problem in this way, I want to say, please do that carefully. Please do that carefully. There might be some good things that come from that, but when we take away all of the difficulties and we say it's all solved by this reconstruction that comes from this, I think it's very dangerous. Tell you why. Two, two quick reasons. Number one, I read some great ones on the internet last night which seemed very persuasive. And if I stood up and presented them to you, I reckon that you would go, that sounds brilliant. 
As I did that, I couldn't find any footnotes that would take me to an ancient text. It's somebody saying, this is what Ephesus was like. And I've good reason to think that they probably mean what they say. But if I can't verify it independently, it's very difficult for me to trust it, even if it sounds brilliant. Secondly, how many people who've read the Bible in the last 2,000 years do you think have had access to archaeological stuff from Ephesus? Would that mean, on this assumption, that this part of the Bible has been misunderstood, in fact, unable to be clearly understood, except for pieces of archaeological evidence? I'm going to suggest to you tentatively there's help in looking at things from history. But if our whole explanation for what the passage means rides on something that's been unable to be accessed by the people of God for the last 2,000 years, I want to suggest we need to do that very carefully. Is that all right? Thirdly, I want to carefully seek clarity here and we'll see how good I go at doing that. So let's have a go. So, uh, verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Basically, what we're going to do, we're going to take these verses one at a time and I'm going to point some bits out. Is that all right? So we'll see how it goes. So firstly, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Um, I want you to note, first of all, this is funny. You might take this totally for granted, but I want you to observe it and I want you to love it. Paul says a woman should learn. That's actually really good. Uh, There's uh, some speculation that if you were a Jewish woman, you might not have been so lucky. The point here is Paul's actually not against women learning. He wants them to learn and he says they should learn. How should they learn? In quietness and in full submission. Uh, I want to point out the word here. I I think this word is particularly... uh, It causes us a lot of angst, doesn't it? Submission. Yes? It causes me a lot of angst. Uh, I want to say two things. Firstly, submission is asked of everyone. You are to submit yourselves to God, every one of you. In Galatians, we're actually told to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here, Paul tells women that they're to learn in full submission. as a particular application of submission, but it's by no means the only place that submission turns up, and it is asked of men and women in other places. Thirdly, it says here, in quietness. I did quite a lot of digging around on this word. And the word doesn't mean, it's not an approximation for silence. Okay? It's actually an attitude of respect. It's it's quite a a different nuance there. It's not that you're to shut up and be quiet. That's not what's going on. It's that your attitude is to be reverent or respectful. He continues in verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach... Or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Uh, it's worth pointing out again, the idea of this quiet word here is probably, probably the same. Uh, first thing to say, uh, it's quite possible to look at verse 12 and say, I do not permit a woman to teach. Is Paul having a little bit of a power trip? Yeah? Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach. And you say, well, who are you, Paul? Uh, I do. Uh, Paul isn't saying, I do not permit, haphazardly, 
and like he's somebody who isn't really uh, qualified to make such a statement. Have a look at uh, verse 7, just a little way back up in chapter 2. After he's talked about the witness of Jesus, he says, and for this purpose I was appointed, what does it say there? A herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. When Paul says, I do not permit, he's not doing it haphazardly, and he's not doing it perniciously, he's doing it with the authority of an apostle. Uh, So it's not so much, I have a whim, as I'm telling you. Secondly, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority. Uh, There's quite a lot of discussion on whether it's um, to teach authoritatively or whether it's to teach or to assume authority. Uh, Done a lot of work on this. It would appear to me that there are two ideas here, not one. Two ideas, not one. As an aside, for those who've read John Dixon's book, he collapses them to one, and I think his case for doing so is particularly uh, weak. And we can have a chat about that later if you'd like to. But I think there are two ideas here. Do not put them to teach or to assume authority over a man. Two ideas, not one. Thirdly, uh, the idea here of assume authority, it, it isn't exercise authority. Um, Paul has a way of saying exercise authority, and he doesn't do it here. I think it's a helpful translation in the NIV 11 that says assume authority. Um, it's to uh, usurp authority or to overthrow the authority of the teacher. Not that she can't do anything with any authority. Okay, why does he say this? Have a look at uh, verse, uh, what verse are we up to? Verse 13. It starts with the word for. For is by means of explanation. Let me explain to you why I've said what I've said. For Adam was, fir- was formed first, then Eve. At, at this point, we're recalling to mind the idea of the Genesis account. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Well, if you, uh, if you didn't like it so far, it didn't get any better there, did it, really? Yeah? Let, let me see if I can explain what I think is going on. Uh, firstly, he's definitely recalling creation stories. So he's saying, the reason that I want this to be the case is to have a look. Let, here's a little picture. Let's look back to creation and see what happened there. Secondly, I don't think he's saying, so we're very clear, everyone listening? I don't think he's saying women are more gullible and that's the problem. I think he's saying that Eve's independence from Adam was the thing that got her into trouble. In in fact, in this account, there's actually a problem with Adam as well, isn't there? So we're clear? Um, Adam's job, Adam, your job was to work with your wife to fill the earth and to subdue it, and God told him very clearly what to do. Now, if he'd done a really good job of passing that on, I assume Eve wouldn't have had a problem. But Eve does listen to the servant, to the serpent, sorry, and is deceived. Uh, She's tricked into believing that what God said won't happen. Uh, Is it pejorative to say that? I I think it's just saying what happened. Saying what happened. Uh, Eve made her own way without Adam. She was deceived and it led to her becoming a sinner. And in fact, it's worth saying, she was deceived and became a sinner. Who else became a sinner? Can anyone tell me? That, that is correct. 
I don't know why Paul doesn't add that there. Uh, it would be very helpful from my perspective. Um, Eve is not the only sinner, okay? She does sin by not listening to God's word. She is deceived by the serpent, but Adam is, I think, extremely culpable in this situation as well. Uh, what we see here, from my understanding, is creation's pattern is reversed. Uh, we have human beings, well, we have God, we have human beings, we have animals, and we have the rest of the, of, of the world. What happens is the animal speaks to the woman, speaks to the man, so that they rebel against God. Can you see the whole thing has been turned upside down? We see creation's order is being reversed. And so I think Paul is calling to mind this creation account by saying, it would be good not to mess with the created order. Now, uh, this is the icing on the cake. Are you ready for this one? But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. Uh, First thing to say on this, I want you to have a look up here and see this. This is notoriously difficult. I can't tell you how many pages I've read on what this means. I have read a lot on what this means. And what I'm about to tell you is my best guess. Are we clear? My best guess. I I do not have a definitive word for you on this. In fact, Matt and I were talking about this just before the start of the service and he was offering me a quite plausible alternative to the one I'm about to suggest to you. That's good. It's notoriously difficult. I want you to note, however, here's something that's solid. You ready? This is something that's solid in this passage here. Women will be saved. First of all, that's good, isn't it? Like that. I want women to be saved. That's good. Women will be saved. And how will they be saved? If they continue in what? Faith. What faith do they need to have? Faith in? You're going to know the answer to this. It's Sunday school. Faith in? Absolutely. If they continue in faith in Jesus, love and holiness with variety. Well, that's where Paul started. I want you to live quiet lives in all godliness. I want you to pray for the advance of the gospel. He actually finishes where he started with right order, with quiet living, okay? So uh, it's still a Christian gospel somewhere here, isn't it? We'll be saved by faith. Brilliant. Now, what about the difficult bit? Yeah, yeah. I want to make a proposal from Genesis chapter 3. Can I get you to open it up? It'll be helpful if you have a look at it. Uh, Genesis chapter 3. You'll have to depart from the other end of the book where you are. I don't, I don't think we really need to call out a page number, do we? We'll all find it. Uh, the, the situation here, so Paul called to mind the, uh, the creation account and what's called the fall where men and women stuffed everything up. Uh, he's in the process in chapter 3 then of cursing the man, the woman, And the snake. Because they rejected God's law, the man gets labour that will be terrible. The woman gets labour that will be terrible. Different labour. And the snake is cursed as well. Have a look at verse 14. So God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity, that's it, I will make you at each other. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Ready for this bit? He will crush 
your head and you will strike his heel. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This arguably is the first point of seeing the gospel in the whole of the Bible. You're going, how is that? Well, the idea is the serpent will have his head crushed. How do you think that will go for his life? How will that work out for his life, do you think? He's gone, dead, right? Who will crush his head? The offspring of the woman. And you will strike his heel, yes, that accounts for the things that we see, isn't it? How does Jesus defeat Satan? Where does he do it? On the cross. How much does it cost Jesus to defeat Satan? Cost him his life. You will crush, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Can you see this? Just a little seed here of the good news that's in Jesus. Well, let me put this together. Now you've gone, okay, that was a piece of information from Genesis I didn't know. Let's now apply it back to our weird bit of the Bible. Have a look. I've just put up um, uh, the ESV translation. It shows you something that we miss in the NIV. I don't normally do this, but I want you to see it. Look at what it says. It says, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness with self-control. What is going on? Who is the she that will be saved? Well, if we have a look in back in 1 Timothy, sorry, back in 1 Timothy. The back in 1 Timothy, the one that we're looking at who's needing to be saved is Eve. Eve is the one who needs to be saved. So what it's saying essentially is, Eve, you sinned and brought, uh, you doubted God, you were deceived, and you brought sin upon yourself. But, 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 you will not be lost but the woman will be saved through childbearing. So Eve, your sin wasn't final. It wasn't the last word. You'll be saved. How will you be saved? Through childbearing. I'm going to argue, because it's a really weird word, I'm going to argue it's through bearing the child. Who's the child? Jesus. Women... And in particular, the woman will be saved through the offspring of the woman, through childbearing, through the bearing of the Messiah who will crush the serpent's head. So first point, speculation. Remember, I told you this. Speculation. First point, Eve's end isn't final. I think that's there for sure. Eve's end isn't final. Secondly, redemption comes through the birth. The birth is the birth of Jesus for the faithful. That's my suggestion. Women, it's not about the fact that no Christian woman will ever die in childbirth. Because tragically, that's not true, is it? Tragically, that's not true. But I think it's that women will be saved through the birth of the offspring of the woman if they continue in faith and godliness. Okay, let's zoom back out. I think Paul is talking to Timothy about how to stand firm and hold the fight against the false teachers. So he says, what's he looking for? Corporate prayer and God's mission. God is on mission. We need to be a prayerful people. God is on mission. We need to be a prayerful people. Point two, what is he looking for? He's looking for a godly and quiet life for men and women. The godly and quiet life for men is don't go about brawling. The godly and quiet life for women is to learn in submission and humility. 
to pursue good deeds with propriety. Well, I dared to put this slide in. What's good about this word? What's good? Oh, I'll go back. Oh, no, no, can't. There we go. It'll come up. Uh, First thing, I think what's good is it's great to know that God wills that all people be saved. Yes? That's your bit to nod vigorously and be excited. Yeah, it's true. It's great. God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Brilliant. It's great that God has made a way for that to happen. The man Jesus Christ, the one mediator we have. That's good. Secondly, it's good that that men need to get into prayer more. We need to hear that, men. We need to get in. That's a good word to us. It's good that women need to keep on being godly. The shape of it, we might have issues with. The encouragement generally, I think, is really helpful. Women, get on with being godly. Get on with being godly. What am I not saying? What am I not saying? I am not saying, you ready for this? I am not saying women can't teach, that they have an inability. Not true. I'm not saying that. In fact, the Bible is very clear that there are plenty of opportunities for women to teach. I'm not saying women can't teach. I'm not saying women have nothing to add. Not saying that at all. In fact, and we'll get to it no doubt in question time, I haven't addressed the 1, uh, the 1 Corinthians 11 passage, but in that passage, um, Paul clearly regulates prayer and prophecy of women in the Bible. So women definitely have things to add. It also doesn't mean that women can have no role in leadership. Uh, we're going to look at that. I'll, sa- I'll save the thunder for, uh, for a little bit later, but we're coming up to that in chapter 3. I think it doesn't say that there's no role for women in leadership. I'm not saying that. What might it mean for us? Right? This is the bit that the rubber hits the road. What might it mean for us? I think because of 1 Corinthians 11, we need to work harder at exploring the place of prayer and prophecy in our service. Okay? And that's because Paul clearly says... Uh, that if a woman is to pray or prophesy, she needs to do this and that, uh, and he's anticipating that's happening in the service. I think we need to spend more time exploring what that means and what shape that might have, particularly in an environment where if we're going to say something about restricting the teaching aspect, uh, we need to explore all the options that are actually legitimated by the text. Secondly, we need to be exploring exhortation and testimony. I see there's no restriction on a whole bunch of things. There's a very helpful part of John Dixon's work. John Dixon's book says, basically, there's some constraints on what happens for women up the front. But he says, you know what? There's a whole lot of things that happen in the assembly that aren't restricted in any way, shape or form. Prayer, prophecy, exhortation and testimony. And I want to say, bring it on. We need to do better at that. If we haven't done that well thus far, I want to say we need to do better and we want to explore that more. I think it does say male leadership in the church meeting is what is expected. I think it says that fairly clearly. Fourthly, what might it mean for us it might mean that we have an ongoing discussion about how exactly to work that out. A discussion between men and women 
who have an ordered relationship but level ground before the cross. Uh, I'm going to pray and then we might take some questions. How's that sound? Uh, Heavenly Father, have mercy. Uh, This is a uh, difficult part of the word. Uh, It's uh, a part that we want to hear, that we want to be able to affirm, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please, Father, help us to see its goodness. Give us grace and humility now that we might be able to helpfully encourage and exhort one another. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we haven't done this before in church. Uh, It's a little uh, new thing. We'll work out how it goes. Um, Can I encourage you as we do it? um, I'm going to look for questions, not statements. Uh, You can come and see me and give me your statement, but I'm looking for a question at the moment, if that's all right. Is Is that okay? Absolutely, max five minutes. Thanks, Matt. Uh, yes, Luke. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's interesting. Oh, yeah. How am I how am I uh, interpreting the covered hair in one Corinthians eleven? Uh, it's really interesting. Paul says, uh, uh, if you open it up, he says that women are to have a sign of authority on their heads, and that we should judge for ourselves if it's right for a woman to have her hair uncovered. Have a look at 1 Corinthians eleven thirteen. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that even if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? And as a woman has uh, long hair, it's her glory. Uh, the, uh, the situation as I understand it here uh, is that uh, she needs to have a sign of authority on her head. Um, it would be understood in the situation around them that if she had a covered head, she was under authority. That seems clear. I'm saying today that you could cover your head and no one would know that you had a sign of authority on you. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't be sending a message that you are a woman respectful of your husband or of authority. It just wouldn't work. You'd be looked at as being one of the people who wears scarves on your head. Uh, I think that the situation here can be accounted for by women who show, have a sign of respect for the husbands and for leadership as they do their role up the front, um, and that this uh, is something that we'll be able to see. Are we usurping authority or are we submitting to authority? In that case, uh, the sign that's a head covering that no longer makes it possible to be understood in the way that it is, will be replaced by an attitude that can be seen by those who are watching. That would be my take on that. Next question. Yes. Cathy. Yes. Yes. Bless you, Kathy. Um, I think Kathy's asking me to uh, to make some sense of uh, verse seven of uh, of one Corinthians eleven. 
where it says, uh, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Uh, I would be fairly comfortable saying that I've invested a good deal of my time in 1 uh, 1 Timothy 2 and not 1 Corinthians 11, um, and that the particular nuances of that uh, aren't at my disposal at the moment, Cathy, although it's an excellent question. I I don't know. Um, Certainly, uh, it would seem to be uh, that the, uh, the, the Adam was formed first, then Eve seems to be the implication. Okay? Yeah. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah, that's really helpful, Kathy. Yeah. Yeah. Is is there a demission? Yeah. Is there a, a, a making little of women's role in honouring God? Is that is that where you're going? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yep, that's, that's really helpful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, can someone jot that down? In fact, Kathy, can you write it on your Karen Connect card? We'll make sure. I'll come back to it. I'll speak to it. Is that all right? Uh, it's, a, it's, a really, it's a really good question, and it's worth not just glossing over. I, I don't have a ready answer, but I can see where it's been potentially misused, and I'd love to address it carefully. Thank you. Yeah, someone else. Yes, Joanne. The ESV, yep. Uh, sure. Uh, so it, it, what, it, what it picks up is, uh, so we're in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, and uh, Joanne's pointing out that I had a different text up than the one that was from the uh, NIV in front of us. It says, but woman will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith. Basically what it does is it picks up a singular woman in the start of verse 15 instead of a plural. Sorry, plural is many, by the way. Sorry, I don't, I don't want to talk too uh, language thing. So what I'm saying here is uh, the ESV reflects what I see in the Greek. Sorry to do this to you, everyone. I love you. I don't do this, okay? This is not how I normally do it. But in the Greek, it's a singular, the woman, and then it says woman, but she. Sure. Could... Yeah, okay, so Joanne's saying, could the she, in verse 15, she will be saved through childbearing, be the church? Um, I like that. That would solve a lot of problems for me. Um, uh, My resistance to that is that the thing that's right next to it is Eve, who was deceived and became a sinner. I think it's most obvious to see that it refers to her, but I like your proposal. Is that all right? Someone else at the back, Bernie? And then I'll come to you, Jenny, and then we'll finish up. Yeah, the, be- the best thing I can say about Sydney Anglicans is there aren't any Sydney Anglicans. Uh, I'll, I'll, try and be, I'll try and be clear. Uh, anyone that you wanted to pocket and say, oh, you're a Sydney Anglican, would, would want to nuance what they say. Uh, and here's the truth. I did not hear this passage taught 
in four years at Moore College. So if you think that there's a Sydney line that's propagated by Moore College, there may have been, Matt, you were there more recently than I have, but it simply wasn't taught at all, explicitly, ever once in college for four years. What that means is there are groups of people who have a common mind on things, but we need to resist saying that there's a Sydney Anglican mindset. And John Dixon would say, I think quite strongly, he's a Sydney Anglican, but not a capital S, capital A, probably in the way that you'd like to, to label him. Okay? So is there a Sydney Anglican view? I think predominantly the diocese has tended towards having um, male leadership and that that has certainly been a characteristic of the diocese. Um, but at the moment, uh, it would be overreaching to say that there's a consensus more generally. That there, there is a body of people who would hold a similar view, but they're not all getting together and punching one another's shoulders and saying, get on with it, if you know what I mean. It, it's more... Uh, it's not as organised as that, is what I would say. Is that all right? Although I would say male headship in families and in church is a, is a characteristic of the Sydney diocese that would set it at odds with the rest of the church in Anglican church in Australia, I think. Uh, Jenny. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, Jenny's saying, how do we delineate roles in the service? Um, when, uh, how do we pick which ones are men things and women things, essentially, is the question. Uh, particularly when women get to pray, but they don't lead services. Um, Matt and I are actually working, we had a chat a couple of weeks ago, working through the leading services thing. Um, I actually think that's a possibility, potentially. I, I'm, just, I'm working through some stuff on that. Um, the, the connection issue for me is to teach or have authority um, and just in what way the leading service activity is, is exercising authority, okay? Um, and I'm undecided on that at the moment, and that's the reason that it's been the way that it has up until now. Um, I, I think that's the one that we need to work through carefully. Um, and I'd like, to, I'd like you to know, I want us to explore what we can do in good conscience under this text here, okay? And I'm sure we haven't pushed the limits of it in any way, shape or form yet, and so I want us to think creatively and energetically about what we can do um, as, we, uh, as we sit under this word. I'm going to pray and Matt will take over the rest of the service. Is that all right? Please come and see me. I know you will. Uh, thank you for your graciousness. I know this has been much longer than normal, so thank you, Matt, also for your graciousness. Heavenly Father, uh, we want to sit with humility under your word. We want to honour you in our gathering. We want to love and care for and respect men and women in the way that you've made them. Have mercy on us, Father. Forgive us our faults. Give us graciousness towards one another and help us to work out what it looks like right here at New Life without necessarily having to look over our shoulder at everyone else. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.